Welcome to all those tuning in to October's Southwest Climate Podcast. As usual, I'm here with Mike Crimmins, climate and coffee connoisseur. Mm, absolutely. Do you have enough to coffee both. today? I We'll see. Okay. Well, yeah. So today, uh, we're going to get to two topics. We're on the cusp of an El Nino. Drum roll. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I know how to do that. But let's, uh, let's first put uh, a bow on the monsoon because uh, we've been alluding to doing a monsoon wrap up. Monsoon? For... When, did, when did that happen? It's, it's now already... officially in the books. Okay, good. So, so we'll get to El Nino. We're going to even speculate on sort of the El Nino's appearance. What we do best, right? And duration. So we'll... <laughs> okay. So there's some, there's some talk about perhaps uh, an, an El Nino lasting a little bit longer than maybe we thought. Right. But yeah. we'll speculate. I on feel that. like it owes us at this point. So yeah, that sounds good. So the monsoon, Mike, in 144 characters or less, can't use your pen. How would you describe the monsoon? A minus. A minus. It's pretty good. Tell that's me not bad. I, yeah, I think that that's so, actually pretty so good. Why, so why an A minus? Oh, it, it had a little bit of little bit of a, uh, something for everybody, I guess, right? You know, you want a haboob here. You want a heavy rainstorm over here. You want a tropical storm. I feel like it, it had, uh, had something for everybody this year. But it had pretty widespread coverage yeah i think that we we did we did well I, not too many places got left behind when we talk about arizona and new mexico which can often happen you can have these monsoon seasons that can roll across here and some places will do amazing and there'll be a lot of holes but we did a lot of filling in with a lot of different types of events across both arizona and new mexico right so if you sort of aggregate all of arizona and look at july august and september it was i believe the ninth wettest on record mm-hmm. or sixth wettest for for arizona and ninth for for new mexico and september for arizona uh in southern parts of arizona was the third wettest, third wettest for yeah southern arizona fourth wettest for the whole state so there was widespread coverage now new mexico also experienced a pretty active monsoon season it seemed in terms of percent of average precipitation it seemed to do even better than than arizona in a lot of, a lot of places they did new mexico was on a tear right from the beginning right from sort of mid mid-june through july arizona had a couple of fits and starts where we picked up right around the fourth of july we had a pretty long break towards the end of the month at that time new mexico was clipping along and then we kind of matched matched up in august Arizona started to have a couple more events. It slowed down in, in uh, New Mexico. And then once we got into September, we started to both share into, uh, some of these tropical storms that were moving across the region. Right. So, at least giving us moisture. Yeah. And we talked about that last month, the sort of uh, pretty active Eastern Tropical Pacific Ocean to the tune of this entire year. If you look at the total cyclonic energy, it's, it's running at about 140%. Of average, so that's a, a measure of both its intensity and the duration. I think there's been 14 uh, categorized hurricanes. Yeah, so there's been 14 uh, hurricanes of, uh, of some sort since since the first of the year, but mainly since uh, since May, actually when the hurricane season ramps up. Those hurricanes, two, at least two of which influenced September precipitation in Arizona. Norbert, we talked about this last month. Provided a lot of precipitation actually for Phoenix and also, also Tucson. I think Phoenix got around at the Sky Harbor airport, like around five inches. Mm-hmm. A large fraction of that came from Norbert. That's right. So the, that moisture, right? And I guess we talked about this last month, you know, creating a situation, kind of an unusual situation or rare situation for Arizona of incredibly deep tropical moisture setting up across the state and becoming fuel for some sustained heavy rain across first the Phoenix metro area. 
and then down across the Tucson metro area. And it wasn't uncommon to actually see precipitation totals over about six hours of over six inches in and around the Phoenix metro area. You know, it hasn't it hasn't stopped actually. We've still we've had what three other tropical storms since October one. Yeah, we've had Simon. Right. We've had. It was Rachel. Rachel, right. Um, and then Polo. Polo, and then right. actually Trudy as well. So Simon, was, Rachel was in late late September. Mm-hmm. Then there was Simon. Polo was in late September too. So it went Polo, September 16th through around the 22nd, depending on where you were. Rachel, uh, the last week of September. And then Simon and Trudy have been both in, in October. Right. So yeah, super busy. And, you know, all of them sort of, we looked at with the wary eye to see if they were going to influence our weather. And, you know, you know, half of these in September have actually been players in our in our local weather systems here across the Southwest. That's that's pretty impressive. You know, looking at the numbers in terms of in terms of total pre- uh, precipitation, we've had some stations across Arizona have record setting or near record setting, not by a slight margin, but by a wide margin. If you look at Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix tallied, I believe, the third its third largest or third wettest uh, monsoon season on on record, it tallied about 6.35 inches. Its average is two and a half. Yeah, right. Prescott was the wettest on record. You know, its average is eight. It tallied eight, about 18 inches. Mm-hmm. And Flagstaff was the fourth wettest. It averages around six inches and it had uh, more than twice that. Right. So widespread precipitation and A minus, uh, according to Mike, uh, precipitation was pretty continuous. If you look at some of the maps, uh, that we've looked at in terms of there was on average rainfall event every other day, mm-hmm. half the time, maybe a little bit less than half uh, time depending. And the intensity for most of these stations was above average. Right. You know, if we, and we look at, I don't know if we can actually remember back to last summer, but Prescott, Flagstaff, some of our higher elevation stations, and a lot of the mountain regions across Arizona had an exceptionally wet summer as well. And I, I think last, last summer was Flagstaff's record setting they either exceeded it again or came close to it again this past year. Prescott, I think, was in a similar boat. Yeah, Flagstaff was four. These are these are two wet summers in a row. And I think what really makes it dif- the difference this year is that, if you remember the last summer too, Phoenix and Tucson had a terrible time um, with the monsoon last year. It was raining in the mountains almost exclusively, very little activity moving into the valleys. And this year was, you know, we kind of had a little bit of everything. We had some... Rain events like um, Norbert in particular, which were actually valley rainers. They weren't mountain rainers at all. Very little rainfall fell across the White Mountains or even in the Sky Islands during that event where the, all that activity was down in the low low desert areas. Then you flip it around, we've had some really good high elevation rain events where the, the valleys haven't got it. And then we've got head events like Odile, which clipped the southeast part of the state, which just dumped a ton of water across Cochise and parts of Santa Cruz counties, um, both in the valleys and at upper elevations. So yeah, a bunch of different pathways of, of getting to pretty heavy rain across different areas. So what do you think was sort of the climate background this year in comparison to last year? That's a good question. I'm trying to think back of what was the big player last year. You know, it must have been we had good, um, decent moisture last year, but but probably not a lot of good mechanisms to move the... Like winds aloft. Yeah, shear in the atmosphere, large-scale, you know, disturbances like easterly waves or, or remnant tropical circulations to organize rain. And so you get in those situations, storms form on the mountains in a really soupy atmosphere and they just rain out and you don't you don't see much other activity moving off into the valleys. This year we had so many different ways of getting moisture in different places and triggering thunderstorms. And it's just a nice potpourri of, of uh, avenues to get precip. 
last year we didn't have the same number of tropical storms either as we as oh we absolutely have very so quiet last year if you remember what we've tallied since you know september more or less from those tropical storms that mechanism wasn't as present uh last year as yeah absolutely year. and 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 don't have the number at, at my fingertips but there were a fair number of named storms in the East Pacific last year, but they were very weak mm. and very short-lived in duration. So what you found here, and it's just like what you said with the you know accumulated cyclone energy index numbers here, we had storms that would pop up in the East Pacific, quickly go to hurricane status, and then strength, and then hang out, move around, you know, travel so long distances. Yeah. Absolutely. The background state was just perfect. All that energy, all that moisture, all that sea, the sea surface temperatures related to that just a great environment. And, you know, I think we were talking offline here is that having all of that moisture at your doorstep um, during our, our convective season down here, you just have that fuel at the ready at any moment. And, you know, last year, you really had to have very, very well orchestrated surges of Gulf moisture to move up in here to, to do that. And so here it's, you didn't have to, the weather systems didn't have to be as careful, right? There's just so much more to work with this summer. So right, so the the tropical storms influence was mostly felt uh, in in September, but it's worth saying that the monsoon was pretty darn good prior to September for most of the region. So I'm looking yeah. at sort of your your uh, characterization. You've looked at 20 stations. Mike's got some maps that he's put on his his websites, and so I've just looked at those 20 stations from around Arizona and uh, mostly in Arizona, but some in New Mexico. Of those 20. Uh, 14 of them had above average precipitations prior to September 1. And then after, if you look at the, the entire monsoon season, only one of them in Springerville was, was below average. And so September helped those six increase in precipitation to either near average or above average. I think it's important for us to sort of maybe pick this apart a little bit more. So that the contribution of the tropical storms is really what pushed a lot of places to average or above average. So if, if September wouldn't have happened and say our monsoon shut down in late August, which sometimes it does, you get to the early September, you get to mid-September, and you're really looking at the retreat of the subtropical high, things can shut down very easily. And then the dew points drop and we're into that kind of miserable, hot, kind of dryish, but not quite there yet conditions. And we didn't really have that. So a lot of our stations in a lot of parts of Arizona, if we didn't have September on top of it, we would have, they would have fallen quite a bit behind in seasonal totals. You know, 70%, you know, you're looking at like Tucson, without that single contribution of Norbert, we would have ended up probably about an inch and a half, two inches behind. Same with Phoenix. The upper elevation um, parts of the state, like you get into the, up, the White Mountains, they needed that to kind of come up and over. Um, they had a lot of activity, but they didn't actually see precip totals that were super wet like we saw last summer. Then you go up even further north to the northeast part of the state up at Hopi and Navajo, and it was pretty quiet up there. You know, they, they actually didn't see a blockbuster monsoon season. If you remember back to last September, they had a huge catch-up with the flooding rains that turned into the um, flooding in Colorado. That's right, the ones in, in Boulder. In Boulder, yeah. right? And so that just didn't happen this year. So the four corners actually is coming in below average with this monsoon season. Yeah, so that is the 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 dry spot in the in the southwest. It's the four corners region. Yeah, I want to put I want to add something to what you just said. So Phoenix in September received more than five five inches of rain. It <laughs> right. only received outside of that an an inch, a little bit more than an yeah. inch. Though and that was influenced by by Norbert. Right. So they a had a little that, bit from Odile. A little bit from Odile and then and then the the wrap up 
uh, event, which actually was more wind and severe weather, which was that last week in September. You know, that's the one that shut down Sky Harbor with the storms rolling through. You got some flooding rains out of that. But yeah, you can even sort of trace it down that it, large fraction of Phoenix Phoenix's total precipitation came in a couple hours with Norbert. I mean, but again, you know, is that unusual for the Southwest? No, that's how we do it out here. But your point, I think, is well taken. It's like, even though the monsoon season was was fairly good uh, in a lot of regions prior to September, had September shut down, which it has in the past, it would yeah. have been, a, we'd be having a different conversation. Absolutely. Right you know, so it was, it was the, um, you know, the, the tropical storm activity, which we cannot count on in any given year, showed up in earnest this year and was, you know, was a completely sort of different avenue of getting these contribution of uh, precip totals in the monsoon season. Right. So we just to put a, a bow on this one as well, I mean, there was Norbert, Odile, there was another tropical de- depression that, that wasn't named. I guess it was named 16E. It's there was nice Polo, name, yeah. Rachel, Simon, and Trudy all since sep- September 1. So it's, yeah. been, it's been fairly active. Some of those, so I don't, I don't know if you've been paying attention as much to New Mexico as, as Arizona. Did, did those tropical storms have the same sort of impact on, on New Mexico? Because if you look at New Mexico's maps, I mean, it, it also had a fair, fairly active uh, pre, uh, monsoon season. Norbert, no, I'm sorry, Odile, which clipped the southeast part of the state. You know, there was a real concern a couple of days out with Odile that it was going to track close circulation right over Arizona and put down six inch totals across the Tucson metro area in particular. There was a subtle deviation in the final track of it and it tracked a little further south. So it clipped southeast Arizona, still caused some destructive flooding in the Chiricahua Mountains, blowing out a Forest Service road. The communities of Cape Creek and Portal had sustained pretty heavy damage that with that event. So um, by no means a busted forecast. I mean, there was it, it just was a little bit off to the south. But that track of, um, of Odile, it clipped, it went right through southern New Mexico. And southern New Mexico over a multi-day period with the residual moisture picked up multiple inches of rain. I mean, just some pretty impressive catch-up amounts across uh, southern New Mexico. Okay, so... The monsoons in our rearview mirror. It is, and it's you know, I, I've I, you know, it's one of those things where at the end of the monsoons I was completely satisfied. You know, where I was to the point where I was like, okay, I'm okay with the dew points to drop back down in the 20s, which they have not by any means. The dew points are still in the 40s and 50s, so we we can't even dry out post monsoon now because there's just so much moisture and that's a tropical hanging around I, I just feel like that you know the storm yeah signal. We're, we're still all we're it's soupy it's soupy uh in the east pacific and but the westerlies are in full effect they are in full effect but they're dragging in uh, unusually moist air off the pacific and sort of fits and starts we've had very little you know sort of breakdown in that and very little drying out in between it's it's been kind of interesting it's my first october here in arizona where you, we haven't had those sort of completely cold evenings where this once the sun goes down you get cold it's still buggy out there it's still humid um and that i think is kind of that's what it's a really interesting fall uh, uh, unusual in in many respects which i think leads us into this is it a harbinger of, for for the winter i think a little bit yeah i think a little bit and the forecast models for for almost 10 months now have been suggesting you know guys in the southwest you might be looking at an unusually wet fall and here that has already verified just with the bitter rain we've had in Arizona twice now in uh, October, which, you know, to me is... And what were they explaining as the reason for that? They weren't... The models don't explain anything. They don't explain a lot, <laughs> right? So you have to sort of, yeah, you have to you have to dig in a little bit. You have to shake them a little bit. You have to sort of poke at them. I mean, them were they picking up on the active 
Yeah, uh, I think that they were. Yeah, yeah, I think that they were. I think that the I think that this idea of enhanced or above average um, moisture in the East Pacific to set a doorstep is it's just it's too it's too um, too useful for any sort of passing storm system to not sort of pick up and use to create precip down here. So I think that that's certainly what the case we had with um, Simon earlier this month, which was a full-on movement of a tropical storm across the southwest with some pretty good rains across southern Arizona. And then we had a cutoff low event um, move across the southwest this past weekend, which I could not believe my eyes of seeing um, wet, cold rain in Tucson this past weekend in October. You know, picking out pumpkins and getting rained on are not two things I'm, I'm, not, I'm used to. Um, weather-wise down here. So the so those models then were probably largely picking up on an El Nino signal because that would have would have influenced the likelihood of tropical storms forming. It could be. It, it's a mess of things, I think, right now. The warm East Pacific is kind of a newish thing across the whole Eastern Pacific right now, which is a kind of a multiple year thing of warming related to the jet stream pattern. And then also the warming in the East Pacific is related to those last couple of Kelvin waves that came across earlier in the season, which we were convinced that was going to be the, the actual lock-in of the, the El Nino instigator, event, yeah. the instigator. And they certainly came by and went. But these Kelvin waves come along just below the surface and then emerge in the Eastern Pacific, but they also strike the coastlines. And then they, they resonate north and south up the coastlines. So that resonation of that wave sort of traveling north is also part of the warming in the East Pacific up along the Mexican coast. So, you know, not a formal El Nino ocean atmosphere interaction, but these ocean waves that have been the harbinger of the El Nino, I think are creating that background condition that we're even seeing change our weather right now, even if not having an official El Nino uh, in the books. So it's probably worth redefining that Calvin wave. Um, but it's basically the the anomalously strong westerly winds that sort of slow down the the easterlies, right? Which allow the water to sort yeah. of slough back from the west to the east. Right. Under, like if you have strong easterly winds, which is the typically prevailing yep. winds, mm-hmm. that water is being pushed in the East Pacific, tropical Pacific, westward. Right. If you slow down those easterly winds. It allows that water to slough back, and yep. that's the that's the Calvin wave. So it's bringing warmer water from the west back to the yeah, east. Yeah, so it's a, it's a physical wave of warm water in the ocean. You know, like super simplistically, if you had a slosh in your bathtub that was sloshing back, a slosh of warm water moving back across because it's not being held up by the easterly winds. And so that's where we were talking last month. You did a really nice job of explaining. These idea of westerly wind bursts releasing these little waves of energy, literally warm water sloshing back. They have been moving across the East Pacific for months now. We've had a couple of these discrete waves, very big one last spring, which we thought was going to be the absolute punch that the atmosphere would need to lock it in. The easterlies would then fall apart. You'd sustain El Nino and you'd, you'd keep it moving. But for the most part, the warm water has been there. The atmosphere has failed to respond, most likely because there isn't a nice temperature gradient. You know, when you have these Kelvin waves go from the West Pacific to the East Pacific, you typically have cool water then, cooler than average water in the West Pacific, and then warmer water, which is reverse of what it normally is. That temperature gradient then is what the winds would respond to. But there's so much warm water now across the whole Pacific that the West Pacific has just been giving bursts of warm water and it's still warm enough that you're not getting the gradients. That seems to be, it's running out of this warm water because it keeps giving up 
to the east is that we're now probably in the next month or so going to see that temperature gradient set up and really move into a formal ocean atmosphere dance between El Nino. So officially, we're still in sort of neutral conditions, but it's on the cusp of a week. Yeah. El Nino, it, and there's growing confidence because as you said offline, it's, it's almost like a, a now forecast. It is. Right? It's like, we, and I think that we said last month that we would say El Nino is here or not. Here, I'll go on the record. It's coming. So <laughs> I can't even say it's here. That's, that's probably, that's uh, not going, that's not record. helping, is it? Okay. Well, anyways, the, um, I think that this El Nino event, and I think there's many others there, that this is a very unique situation. And so I think that we're going to have interesting weather to look at and watch and talk about for the next year, maybe two years now. So why, why is it unique then? Um, because it's it has all of these really interesting and unique patterns across the Pacific Ocean, really profound changes in ocean atmosphere. You know, we use all these indices like Southern Oscillation Index and You've heard us talk about Nino 3.4, which is just a, a very simple way of looking at a very specific part of the ocean and what its temperature patterns are, if they're above or below average. Those are very, very probably clunky ways of tracking El Nino. And when you get into situations that aren't like the big ones, big La Ninas or big El Ninas of the past, but they're slightly different expressions, they kind of fail you, right? And I think we're in a situation right now where it's a different flavor of El Nino, Different I think it's sea still, surface temperature patterns. Yeah, at late, the timing is different. The pattern is different. There's been some events that have occurred over this last six months that the models have been struggling with. We've all been struggling to understand. I think we've mentioned in past podcasts that um, there are some ENSO experts, El Nino Southern Oscillation experts, who've been saying, you know what, this looks a lot like 1986. That keeps coming up. And 1986 was a very late forming El Nino event, but you know was a form of El Nino event and interesting enough, was part of a two-year El Nino event that actually lingered through the spring and following summer with the subsequent El Nino winter the next year. So hold that thought because 86, the year that I believe that New York Giants won the Super Bowl. Oh my gosh. Just to put like really? context to 1986 because yes. it's so far, you know, it's so far in the past. Right, right. But in terms of precipitation for winter precipitation, December through March, it was above average for about half of half of Arizona, right. and for nearly all of New Mexico, and then sort of west of uh, the dividing line, the half dividing line, the east-west dividing line in Arizona, on the western side of that, all the way out to the coast of California, was, was dry. So that was sort of the, if we're going to use 86 as an analog, perhaps, of, of what this winter may look like. This is super dangerous, right? Um, I think it's useful in the sense of thinking about there have been late-forming El Nino events is this going to be a perfect analog? I there don't are know, no perfect. But it's a good. I think it's a good thing. I think what I take away from it is is that that what you just described is a that's a a pretty typical El Nino where you get a a wet um, or above average precipitation signal across the southwest. And again, it's not. It's never perfect. Like it rains every single month, and there's a complete break um, from north to south or east to west in it. But what it suggests to me, and and you use that sort of analog situation. Then we look at the dynamical forecast models. The dynamical forecast models, which have been suggesting wet conditions across the southwest now for 10 months, they actually picked up on the summer pretty well down here, and they picked up on the early fall pretty well down here. So their, their track record in the immediate is pretty good, and they still suggest a wet or above average winter for Arizona and New Mexico all the way out through March. So And California, in, in right? Cal Well, so, and this is interesting that... The suites of models, there's the there's two what we call multi-model ensembles, a bunch of models, 
bunch of ensembles, sort of just giant bowl of spaghetti, and you try to look for the pattern, and you average them all out. You average them all out, which is important because it the, is. the average tends to do better than any one single model. Yeah, exactly. You know, there some are better at some things in certain situations. So the idea is that hopefully, you know, putting them all together gives you a better signal. The one suite of models, which are all the U.S. models, National Multimodel Ensemble, has a very hard break across California with Arizona and New Mexico going wet and then maybe Southern California going wet and then Northern California going very dry. The International Multimodel Ensemble, which has the European model in it, which is the gold standard, shows most of California all the way through Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas going wet. During for this winter season, so I which mean, is stakes are super high. Yeah, right stakes now. are high yeah. because particularly for California last year, which was ravaged. Well, it's been in a, a three-year or slightly longer drought. I, I think I just read a report where they tallied the economic impacts associated with 2014's drought on on California: two point two billion dollars. Billions, yeah, billion, yeah. Seventeen thousand jobs were lost. So it, it, California will have the eye of the nation looking at it for this winter. Absolutely. I mean, right. And it, California is a big, long state from north to south, right? So it's going to be really interesting to watch, too, because what will most likely happen is that part of the state will do well and part of the state won't. I mean, it's so hard for the whole state to do well. And that's actually pretty common it's during super, El Nino. Absolutely. Events, right? there, the, there tends to be a sort of hinge line. The hinge line. And that's what's interesting with the, the International Multimodel Ensemble, which is, again, the big granddaddy suite of models, including some of the international models, they have for the wintertime season, the hinge point is through Oregon. So it that's a that's a really, really hmm. far north hinge point, typically, right? So the, and the, you see that teleconnection where the Pacific Northwest goes dry and then the Southwest goes wet. It'll be really interesting to sort of see how that plays out. The National Multimodel Ensemble has a much more southern tier states and arizona even is on the cusp of it too so it's got more of southern arizona southern new mexico um, mexico texas going wet and the southeast going wet which you can certainly see because that subtropical jet which is what we're looking for during these el nino events can be displaced south and if they set up just south of arizona new mexico we can have record dry winters here with all you can see it out your window to the south but if it's displaced a little bit further north, then we can be in the firehouse. And it can it can lash up and down California coast, and they could actually do really well here too. And again, it's going to be this whole mix of, of weather that will kind of ebb and flow through the whole winter season. You know, it's I doubt every month will go wet, but my guess is we're going to get a couple of pretty good wet periods through the through the winter season. But the bottom line in terms of El Nino is is we're pretty much on the cusp of— We're on the cusp of it, I, and I think it's— It's, it's going to be likely weak— Weak yeah, to moderate. Well, and it, it's. I think that yeah, weak to moderate. I don't think moderate is uh, is off the table. Quite honestly, yeah, I, I feel like we're <laughs> we haven't quite sorted it out, and it'll be really interesting because it's in, it's gonna ha- it's now it's in real time, right? We're gonna be watching week to week. Some signs are across the Pacific that it's really underway, and we're just waiting for all the indices and right. And the indices take a while. I mean, they're yeah, they're, they're three lagged. month average. Yeah, so it's not until you're well into it right. that you can actually sort of declare it. So, but the, the sea surface temperatures are hovering around currently. They're hovering around that zero. Uh, they're in the warmish. Yeah, they're they're, they're not warm. quite above threshold. Um, threshold is uh, half a half degree Celsius. Yeah, b- above average in that box that we have got drawn in the Pacific Ocean. So yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of time and waiting it out. Uh, you already are seeing weather patterns. Um, what we call troughs in the in the eastern Pacific and the and the west coast now that are that are really encouraging to me anyways. You really don't see 
the copycat pattern or the carbon copy pattern we've had over the last couple of years of that ridiculous resilient ridge. You really see a different, I think anyways, a really different. So that's now. the that's the ridge that's set up that has really been persistent for a while. That's yeah, multiple years. That's you pushed know, and storms away from California. Right. Yeah. So the Pacific Northwest going wet, um, British Columbia going wet. And we're you, underneath that ridge. It's a pattern that actually shows up repeatedly in history. Like I just read a paper, uh, 1934 uh, year, which produced the most intense drought for California, that same sort of weather pattern was present during that year as well. It's a common pattern that sets up that creates these these drought conditions. But you're saying that in the models, there's no indication that that will persist like no, it has. You so that's good. You, I think so too. You don't you don't really see any hints of that, even in sort of short-term weather models or any sort of thing. And is that robust across those models? Or is that is that the multi-model ensemble? Well, and again, you, you just, you couldn't really see a circulation pattern like that with an El Nino event. And that's really what I think it's coming down to. So as, as everything is sort of converging on an El Nino event, you know, weak to moderate, it's very difficult to have a pattern like that. So I think that that's, that's probably what we're, um, probably what we're seeing. And so there is some indication that this El Nino may be experiencing a, a sort of a longer life to it. People will have fun going back through our past podcasts of, of how... All, this is all speculation. It's all speculation, <laughs> right. So if this is anything like 1986... That was a double dipper. Some of the forecast models have suggested that typically an El Nino event will crash with the temperatures kind of going back to average in the springtime. And a lot of them are sort of dragging out. It's sort of extending through the spring and into the summer. It's way too early to tell because we've been sort of now casting this event rather than forecasting it. It's a fun thing to think about. We'll keep our eyes on it. Keep our eyes on it. And what does that even mean for a spring down here? I'm not really sure, actually. What What does an El Nino spring look like? It does, again, super, we just closed out the monsoon season, but, you know, you could play games in your mind with, there's weakish, you know, potential of messing with the monsoon season next year. But at the same time, is that, again, another enhanced East Pacific tropical storm season? So there's all sorts of fun things you can think about. Yeah, and I think, at least for me, although the monsoon season is more exciting to think about in terms of weather and in terms of, of climate, it's really the winter where the impacts are most yeah. important or alleviated or, or worsened. I'm not discounting the sort of grasses and, and the importance for the vegetation for, for ranching and, and, and ecosystem health. In terms of water, however, we've talked about this a number of times. Most most of the listeners probably know it's it's all about the winter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have not dug ourselves out of a drought with a, a couple of good summers here, right? Again, short-term drought conditions, Definitely improved by having rain in the summer, but yeah, we need to we need to get a winter in here. We haven't had a we haven't a winter in a long time now, quite honestly. It's also interesting to note that an El Nino signal for the Upper Colorado River Basin isn't as robust as it is for southern um, the Southwest, right? Southern parts of Arizona, New Mexico, so it can go either way. So it's not as good of a, a sort of forecasting device. El Ninos can be a problem for the Upper Colorado snowpack. Right. I mean, if you get a focused storm track that's south of Colorado and Utah, you could end up with a pretty nice winter down here and be in a serious Colorado River situation by next spring. So we can wish watch for, what we would. Yeah, exactly. What, yeah. Right. You know, the, you know, maybe uh, maybe what we really needed at this point, like robbing from Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. Right. Maybe like we that. needed a neutral winter to make sure we got the water at the right spots. You know, but, you can't, you know, this is the game down here is that. There's no perfect situation here to make everybody happy. So I think moving forward, we've spent a lot of time in the last four months or so talking about basically two phenomenons, 
El Nino or La Nina or Enso for that matter and the monsoon. But I think next, uh, next episode we should talk about another pattern that influences our, our, our winter weather. Maybe not as much here in the Southwest, but certainly, uh, in the Northeast and in other parts of, uh, of the globe. And that's the, Arctic oscillation. Absolutely. I mean, what what better time of year than uh, I'll, I'll wear my um, and there's been my a lot of cap and yeah. There's been gloves. a lot of interesting research on on that, so we'll we'll try to highlight that. So to foreshadow our next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the Arctic oscillation, and obviously we'll revisit the ENSO because that's because it'll be a most, fluid fluid it'll be event. most likely close to happening by next month. So, so anything else you want to add about ENSO or about the monsoon? Monsoon, I give it a minus. El Nino. I give it a C plus at this point, just because it's 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 not showing the initiative that I would like it to to show. Maybe more of a C you're, actually you're, at this point. That's, you're a hard grader. I am pretty tough grader. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for uh, everybody tuning in again. And uh, again, if you'd like to have us address a question, feel free to email myself or or Mike Crimmins. Uh, um, and you can find our emails on uh, the Clemus web page. And we'll be happy to field those questions and, and try to address them. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for all tuning in to this month. What month are we in? Uh, it's October. Let's get that worked out. Stop abusing social media. I don't understand what's <laughs> happening. I'm ready to throw it down today. Too many tabs. I have like a hundred tabs open. <laughs>